Welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. With me on the show today, I am delighted to be joined by Rebecca Ryan. She's a noted top 50 professional futurist and founder of Next Generation Consulting. So Rebecca, we were talking before the show about your tagline. Yeah. So for the listeners, I was saying to Maureen that I feel like we've got a a little bit of a kismet or a kindredship here because Maureen is all about co-creating the future. And our slugline is the future is ours to create. So we're all in the co-creation of what is to come and may it be brighter. (laughs) May it be brighter. (laughs) Well, and I think both of us really came in with the perspective that how we show up changes the opportunity set. And by having these kinds of conversations, what's possible actually can change. So let's use that as the lead into what is strategic foresight. Strategic foresight, if you just take the two words apart, is designed to give you a strategic advantage. We do that by using foresight, by peering ahead to what's coming and building a strategy that is biased towards the future. I'm sure people right now are like, well, duh, okay, word salad. Why is that important? And it's important because if you've ever been in one of those organizations where you could literally write your next strategic plan by using the find and replace function in Microsoft Word and just find everything that says 2025 and replace it with 2030, and that's the next strategic plan, you know that a lot of plans are based on the past. It's like you're trying to do the greatest hits album with like a remix. Like, let's just take everything we've always been good at and do it a little bit better, faster, cheaper. And the garbage dump of failed companies is full of organizations that did just that until it was too late. So in Foresight, what we do is we give a deep bow to the future and to our history and thank it and definitely maybe pull some things forward. But the bias is to what's coming. Are we ready for the next five years? Are we building something that our successors want to take over? Are we investing in the kinds of things that are going to delight our future clients and not just our past clients? We talk about this idea of VUCA, and for some people, they've overheard it and others don't know what it is. Volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. One of the things I imagine some of our listeners are saying is, look, with all this going on, how do I know? So I'm just not going to plan or I'm going to do a three-month, six-month rolling one-year plan. You know, we've seen so many changes in the last few months. How do I know? But you do know. I understand why people get frustrated and they just want to do a three or a six month rolling plan or adaptive planning is something that we're hearing a lot about in the immediate post COVID times. And I'm not here to diss that. That is absolutely the right answer for some organizations. But let me ask a question of the listener. Okay. So really bring to mind the business that you're in. And now imagine that tomorrow morning you got a text from someone else in the organization and said, I hope you're sitting down because fill in the name of the person or the organization. They have just opened a new office that is directly competing with us and we are going to lose all of our clients in the next six months. Okay, you got that text. Now, what would be behind that? What would be the thing? that the new kid on the block who's hell-bent on eating your lunch Uh would be doing, leveraging, et cetera, that would put you out of business. The answer to just that question probably gives you a pretty good idea of the future-facing investments you should be working on now. You know, I would add to that from a scenario planning perspective, what is the best possible outcome that we could have? So an adjacent firm decides they love what we do and they want to pay us not a multiple on our earnings, but a multiple on our IP. Now, how do we position ourselves to succeed in that? Yeah, that might be your what we call in my business, your preferred future. Certainly better than <laughs> I'm out of business. Right. But it's interesting because one of the four phases of the foresight process that we use is called imagining. And in that phase, it's the second phase, 
We encourage clients to look at multiple plausible futures. In fact, before we jumped on today, I spent about four hours this morning. I'm writing some scenarios for a community in the Mountain West of the U.S. that is running out of water. Eventually, they'll get four scenarios. They're going to get a challenging future scenario where we really explore the dark side of what could happen. They're going to get an expectable future, which is if they continue to act as they always have. This is called the business as usual, the BAU scenario. And then we write two visionary futures for them where things are sort of surprisingly successful. They ended up making some of the right bets at the right time. And, you know, some of the external conditions were favorable. One of the differences between foresight and strategic planning, traditional strategic planning, is that we explore multiple plausible futures. Because when you look at a range of possible futures, things start to become really clear to you, especially around the things you need to be paying attention to because they will be ballast for you regardless of what the future comes. We call those things crossover levers. They cross over multiple futures. And often the strategic plans that come out of a foresight process pay special attention to those. Can you give an example? Yeah. So as many people know, our power grid (laughs) needs some transformation. It's a large piece of infrastructure. It needs some updating. And we have done some net zero carbon plans for one public power utility in particular. And we were hired to come in and help them think about how to get to net zero carbon by 2050. And they had chosen that domain because that's what their board had asked them to do, public power. So they have an elected board that oversees them. And as we were looking to 2050, the first phase in our process is the phase called sensing, where we look at a lot of trends across society, technology economy, environment, the regulatory environment. And in doing that process for this client, they were so focused on just like the electricity component of this, like being a good utility. But when they started to look at the demographics, for example, of their region and realize that the trends are that there will be greater poverty in their area than there is now, then they had to start thinking through like, oh my goodness, we're probably going to need a more robust program around helping people who maybe can't afford their energy rates. Or what could our new bundled package be, like our basic package? And as we work through this entire process with their executive leadership team, they definitely figured out how to get to net zero carbon by 2050, but they also saw five other huge opportunities for them to really deepen their trust with their member owners, you know, who are the residents in that region. They saw opportunities to get almost nearly perfect power onto the grid. They saw so many more opportunities. It ended up being six in all. So this foresight process is really useful on the front end of a planning process because it helps you anticipate what's coming. As I'm listening to you, I think of a case study I heard recently in an ESG course that I was getting certified in, and they were looking at materiality. And one of the issues specifically around power was also equity. Often the dirty power plant also happens to be in the poor neighborhood, because if you live in a mansion, you don't put it next to a coal-fired power plant or a nuclear plant. So they were looking at things like, can we put solar more concentrated in this neighborhood and consequently deliver power to them at a much reduced cost? And the solar is not going to pollute and have the same negative fallout as emissions from coal. Can you hear me clapping wildly in the background as you're saying this? What this is reminding me of is when France and England and some other countries were coming out of COVID and they were designing their business incentives, they were really intentional about making sure that each incentive had co-benefits, just like you're saying. So not only are we going to be renewable, but we're going to put these renewable plants in neighborhoods where it'll decrease their costs for the energy. You know, when you do foresight, when you take a long look out, you give yourself the gift of time to think about, all right, we've got these six strategies. In what ways are they intersectional? How could we do one thing that would benefit two or more of these strategies? And You know, not every client gets that, I'm going to be honest. Mm -hmm. But for the ones that do, it almost becomes like a drug. It's like, okay, what else could we do? Because it lets you maximize Mm -hmm. your investment that you're going to make anyway. I ran a nature preserve at one point. 
we were reclaiming land that had been strip mined. So it was already in need of nurturing. And we had talked about putting windmills on the property because it would fund the resurrection of the property. Now, unfortunately, reality didn't intersect our planning process in that it was too early for this to catch on. We explored all kinds of things like green burials and things that you can do that would create an opportunity to do the good work of a land restoration but there's a cost to that. How do you fund it in ways that are sustainable? Yeah, you can't do it every time. You know, you can't create a co-benefit every time. And again, I, I just want to really reinforce, oftentimes when we're doing foresight, we're looking five years, 10 years, 20 years ahead. And that is such a gift to give today's decision makers that length of time to think through some things. I, it reminds me of some Native Americans who think in terms of seventh generation or the Ho-Chunk here. I'm on Ho-Chunk land in Wisconsin. And they think in hundred year cycles. And there's a great benefit to leaders who think in 100 year cycles because they don't have the pressure of figuring out, oh my God, what are we going to do this quarter? Or what are we going to get done by the end of 2022? I would say that slightly differently through the lens of what we're going to do in a hundred years, then I can back it up to what we're going to do in 2022. And it really informs every decision I make. That's exactly right. You can feel the difference between somebody who is really focused on quarterly earnings versus someone who is thinking five to seven generations ahead. We do a leadership class and we talk about levels of maturity and there's a game we use and now I'm trying to remember the name of it but it has a tick 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 and it accelerates as you go through it gives you the feeling in your body that you feel when you're trying to hit the I've got deliverables due at noon when 90% of your world is that it's a different feeling living in the body than it is 50% of my deliverables are immediate and some amount are longer future, more strategic. That's exactly right. I mean, you talked about this at the very beginning about how to embody taking a longer view. Roman Kaznarski has written a book called How to Be a Good Ancestor. And he talks about the pace of time, right? And he's got a little graphic in there from seconds to minutes to days to weeks. And it's one of those images that's shown with perspective, right? So up close are seconds and in slightly smaller font are minutes and then behind it days and weeks. And by the time you get to centuries, the font's really small and, and really far in the future. I did an exercise recently with some leaders in North Carolina I asked this group of leaders, in which time horizon do you live most of your life? And minutes and days were the top two answers. So some of what strategic foresight is, is giving people permission to do slow thinking. I love, love, love that. We had a conversation with Kim Campbell, the only female prime minister of Canada, we ended up calling it being a good ancestor because that was the book she was so focused on and her question in her life now that she's exited the prime minister role and taking on a more global activist but behind the scenes role with other female presidents and prime ministers is what does it mean to be a good ancestor and will the next generation so to your point generations forward Will they spit on our graves for the things we did now? Or will they applaud that we've made the difficult choices? The tie-in and that you have a process that's repeatable that people can engage in to navigate from minutes and days to generations and connect the dots. Because the idea of being a good ancestor is a beautiful idea. But I imagine even people who love that concept don't know how to operationalize it. Then they go back to work on Monday morning and they're thinking days and weeks. Yeah, it's true. There's a fair amount of toggling back and forth that these leaders have to learn to do to go from slow thinking and long-term thinking, you know, really having critical conversations because there are things you just cannot and should not try to decide on email. You know, <laughs> these are long-term conversations. 
And then to toggle back to that sort of more instantaneous, I need answers and I need them now from 50 staff members and 400 emails. The people who undertake this process to me are just heroes. And we need heroes. Do we ever? Do we ever? What's one thing every leader listening to this podcast can do today to help them increase their foresight quotient? Let me just back out for just a second and encourage listeners that there are two things that I mostly talk about. And if you think of them as like two columns, one column is the column of how to think like a futurist. So I've mentioned slow thinking, and I'll probably mention some other things before the podcast is over. And the second column of things that I talk about are the processes and techniques that we use as futurists to explore the future. So the advice I'd like to give to every one of you who's listening right now is number one, you're already a futurist. If you asked your AI today, what the weather was going to be, if you're worried about your stock portfolio, if you're planning a vacation, and I hope you all are, you are already a futurist. You know how to do this kind of thinking. It's just that most of us haven't learned how to do it in a structured way or a repeatable way, Maureen, as you said. And so we're just very amateur in how we do this. So the thing I would encourage every listener to do is really simple. Broaden your inputs. As we get older, as we get promoted, as we start to possibly buy our own bull that like we know what's going on and we have more answers, our inputs tend to narrow. And to be a good futurist, there's this posture of just openness and curiosity. What are you working on? I ask the barista at my favorite coffee shop, what's new and exciting in your world? And he's married to somebody who works in environmental science. I'm like, what's Katie working on right now that's really lighting her up? And just to try to have interactions with all kinds of different people about what they're wondering about right now, what they're thinking about the future, what they're worried about about the future. Every week, if you're like, okay, Rebecca, I can do that. I need harder homework. Here's something that might be a little bit more difficult, but it's going to become the meeting you don't miss. Every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Central, I and a bunch of other nerds get together and we talk about the future of communities. We are former mayors. We are futurists. We are wellness experts. We are former Chamber of Commerce executives. And we all bring signals of the future that we're noticing in our respective environments. And all we do, I mean, it's like when you get together for coffee or drinks, you know, you kind of go around and say, all right, what's new with everybody? So everybody brings their signals of the future. And then we all talk about it. Like, what does that mean? Huh, I wonder what that's about. And it's become this meeting. I mean, I do a fair amount of keynote speaking. There are several other people in this group who do a fair amount of keynote speaking and writing. And it's become the meeting that we don't miss because we can't go anywhere else and have this, this kind of exchange about what's happening on the fringes, on the margins. And that's the final thing I want to end with to answer your question is the signals of the future are not in the mainstream. By the time they end up on the local news, they're not a signal anymore. They've reached some sort of level of mainstream acceptability. The signals of the future are on the margins of the ecosystem. We know this from biology. We know this from fashion. We know this from innovations and in how we do HR. We know this about innovations and in how we introduce new products and services. It is never a mainstream thing. It's always something on the edges and on the margins. Do you have a favorite or a few favorite go-to publications? Because there are some I read and I'm, I'm going to be listening to see if we read the same stuff or if we're completely divergent. I looked back through my list recently and kind of cleaned it out. There are 132 publications that I look at in several different categories. I don't have a favorite per se because there's not a consistently good publication. Like there are sometimes when medical and tech news is really blowing my mind, like, wow, there's a lot happening there. And then there are other times when business news is really lighting me up. So I don't have a favorite source. I would say that the magazines that I subscribe to are very few, but I think they're great. One is Farsight by the Copenhagen Institute for Future Studies. Mm -hmm. The second one is Wired Magazine. I like some of the long form journalism there. And I also subscribe to Yes Magazine because 
if people stay plugged into the national news, they're in a doom spiral. National news is so far away and it feels so wah-wah, sad trombone. So Yes Magazine is one of these sources that always has news of people doing amazing work. Beautiful. And mine are a little more mainstream, but McKinsey does some really good research. World Economic Forum does global, some Deloitte, some Accenture. And then I read a futurist publication that sometimes makes me angry, future edition from the Arlington Institute. I don't know that one, but yeah, those are those are good ones, Maureen. They would basically do what you do, which is aggregate from all kinds of different arenas. But some of their political commentary just makes me angry. But it's also helpful to know what other people believe. They're publishing it because I think from a deep belief in that perspective, different than mine, but that's informing a lot of people in our world right now. And I should be at least aware of the different perspectives and points of view. You know, that's one of the keys, I think, to being a good futurist as well, is to have your lines in the water with all kinds of people. Today, I was at lunch with a friend of mine who is almost 80. I'm 50 as we record this, and I've known her for over 20 years. And I'm probably a little bit to the left of her politically. She's a little more down the center, but we were both talking about how much we value people who think differently than we do. And that's most of my family. And that's important as a futurist, because if you get too stuck in one way of thinking, number one, that shows me that your inputs aren't very broad. But the other thing is that there's not a point of view that owns the future. In my experience, I've over 20 years now I've done this work, and a lot of it is in the public sector or in the public sector adjacent space. And the future is nonpartisan. We might get in pissing matches about the past and who was wrong and who was right. But when we start talking about our kids and we start talking about their kids, the politics can recede and we can have a conversation. The other thing I love about the futures conversation is it really invites the voice of the next generation in. From my perspective, it's almost immoral to have a conversation about the future without having the next generation represented. In fact, the country of Wales has formalized this. So they have a commissioner, the next generation commissioner, and um, their job is to help Wales pass policy that centers the well-being of future generations. And they're not the only country who's done it. Portugal has now created a commission for the future Many countries in Asia are going through training, including for their presidents and cabinet members on foresight. So COVID really shook people up in how to think long-term for the future. I love the breadth of your impact and that it is global and the idea that the future perspective, because we are leaving what we create to the next generations, irrespective of some views on the environment, the data is suggesting that the next generation and subsequent generations could have a very different opportunity set. You're talking about insufficient water available, and that's already happening in some communities. So this isn't 30 years out. This is today. Depending on the scenarios, there are communities that won't exist five years from now because they don't have water. That's true. So helping leaders add future impact to the algorithm they use, even in how do I both meet my short-term goals and attend to future generations, the environment as a stakeholder, not to be all fluffy, but again, you know, if you're in a community that's been flooded, one of our teammates went on vacation to Colorado, two of her friends had their houses burned down. And they weren't in the same neighborhood. This is not somewhere across the ocean happening to those people. This is happening much more broadly to people we know and the probability of it accelerating, even if we are taking aggressive action, is high. It's amazing what happens when it happens to your family. You know, when something happens to somebody you love, all of a sudden it's real. And there's that idea in science of the hundredth monkey. You know, by the time you see something in the hundredth monkey, you're like, wow, this is really a thing. I think a lot of people have reached that point. There's some research that shows that this actually isn't a partisan issue. People across 
all the political channels are tuned into this. They recognize that it's happening and it's affecting them. I think the bigger issue is two things. One is not having a nihilistic approach to this because some people just want to throw their hands up and say, you know, it's too late or I'm only one person. What can I do? So how we create solution sets that are as unique as the United States and the regions within those United States. Maybe I'm naive, but I have seen humans do amazing things when they're on their back foot. The amount of creativity the amount of, uh, I was a professional basketball player in Europe, so forgive the sports metaphor, but the amount of teamwork, you know, the ability to really figure things out together. Long term, you know, my long bet is on humans. It really is. I just came from facilitating a leadership team meeting where the most senior executive is taking time off to attend to a family health issue. And this team came together, back to your teamwork issue, or teamwork opportunity, the team came together in a way they haven't had to. Now they have to, and they are. When you're on your back foot, it's amazing what's possible and probable when we create the opportunity and back to the work you're doing, connecting the dots, creating the tactical opportunity so that when they show up tomorrow, they're able to connect what happens seven generations to I have to behave differently and get X done because the boss needs it and he's not going to be able to check up on me and help me and whatever. I need to get it done now. Two things come to mind as you're saying this. Well, three things, because the first thing is, is I'm really sorry about your colleague's situation. And I hope that unfolds in a way that is as beautiful as possible and as life affirming as possible. Secondly, you know, you're making such a great point about who was it that said, what is the mother of invention? Desperation is, is the mother Necessity. of invention. Necessity. <laughs> Necessity is the mother of invention. You said that your listeners are very smart and are willing to take a very nuanced view. So I want to introduce this foresight technique called causal layered analysis. Futurists are terrible marketers. So I apologize for all of my sisters and brothers who are terrible at naming things. But causal layered analysis, or CLA for short, is it's kind of like one of those iceberg metaphors, you know, that you can only see the top of the iceberg above the waterline, but there's so much more happening beneath. And we have told ourselves a story in America about the myth of rugged individualism. That story is like the lowest level of the causal layered analysis iceberg. It is at the very, very bottom of that. That is what the prevailing myth is in America. Like it's to be, it's up to me, you know, like I can do it, pull myself up by my bootstraps. That's one of our founding myths in this country. And so what's above that myth is people's worldview. And the worldview for some people is I got to take care of mine. You're on your own right? So then on top of those worldviews, you get systems that are all about individual effort, individual outcome. And so we ignore things like the family system or the neighborhood system or, you know, whatever the system is around, I'm thinking of children in this case. And then above the waterline, we see these results, right? So I'm thinking about childhood educational achievement as an example, you know, which again is a combination of individual student scores results. So if we want different outcomes in our community, in our society, if we want something different above the waterline, we've got to go down and change the founding myth. And when I used to do futurist camp, we had um, a member of the Ho-Chunk Nation who came to Futurist Camp. And I think it's fair to say that most of us learned far more from him than we taught him, or certainly than I taught him. But in the Ho-Chunk Nation, the myth at the very bottom of that CLA metaphor 
is that we're all connected, that plants and animals are our brothers and sisters. So then you think about what the worldview is that sits on top of that. And this is where you get that 50-year, 100-year worldview that is about sustainability and taking care of each other. And tribes have their role. Like the, my camper was from the deer tribe, you know, and they have a very specific responsibility amongst all the other tribes that is theirs to do. But then on top of that, you get systems that are more generative and more inclusive. And then on top of that, you get a different set of outcomes. So it's interesting to me to see, I, I will even do this, like when I enter an organization, I will just quietly watch and listen. And I can often determine what some of the prevailing myth and metaphor is in the organization. How are policies handled? How do people interact with each other? What gets celebrated and ritualized? What kind of people are elevated and promoted? What kind of people are teased? And that tells you a lot about the prevailing story and the myth within the system. And it gives you a sense of, you know, from my perspective as a pragmatist, it gives me a sense of the kinds of tools and techniques I can introduce that will make sense and they won't be allergic to, which may be something completely different in a different kind of an environment. Yeah, I love the idea of layering story, worldview, we call it developmental maturity, but it's worldview. It's, it's when this thing happens, how do I interpret it? When you are talking about all things connected, I have been part of Native American communities for years, specifically through rituals and such. And then I saw the movie Avatar, Hollywood's version of showing everything connected is interesting because it conveys that same kind of mental construct in a way that is accessible in a way only Hollywood can make things accessible. So I love that we are able to kind of cross-pollinate worldviews and stories for people who wouldn't necessarily resonate. And I hear you saying the same thing, that you will talk about the story through the language that participants can hear and resonate with rather than having the autoimmune response. That's right. And the punchline for this whole sort of CLA setup is if you want a different future, you might need a different story, you know, a different founding metaphor to get different kinds of results. Because if all you're trying to do is just fix things at the problem level or even at the system level, but you still have people who fundamentally see the world in a way that doesn't comport with those systems, it's just going to be an exercise in frustration. And I think that's some of what we see when, you know, we have, for example, a school superintendent comes in and sort of changes everything at a systems level, but the people within the system may never have changed how they think about their role of being a facilitator with the student, you know, like being a guide on the side versus a sage on the stage. And how do you get different educational outcomes in that environment if all you're doing is changing the systems and changing how things are reported and how things are evaluated if you don't go a little bit deeper and consider people's worldview? I know how I do, and I don't do strategic planning at the level you do, so I'm not trying to assert that. I do a much lighter version. And one of the things I have people do is write their story of the future. This future that you're trying to create, give me the story. When you come back in five years, and, and I've heard them say, like, we're on the cover of Forbes magazine, and we're whatever, they're imagining something bigger than the bullet points I've seen on the page that are kind of the standard bullet points everyone puts on the page. So that's how we use it. I'm imagining you do something much more comprehensive. Well, yes. I mean, however, I have to say it really takes high trust with a client to do this process with them, to do this CLA process with them, because it is hard for, and I'll just say this is a lot of white leaders right? And to admit that the guiding myth or metaphor is a zero-sum game, you know, that the guiding myth might be self versus other. And it's one of the reasons, I don't know if you know Heather McGee's book, The Sum of Us, but she wrote this terrific book around why the commons, like our public goods in America, um, have decreased over time. 
And her findings indicate that for white Americans, they believe in a zero-sum game, that if something is good for people of color, it is necessarily bad for them. And so they will vote against the common good if they perceive that a person of color will benefit from that. Whereas people of color do not have a zero-sum perspective on things. They say, hey, if we're going to do something that's going to benefit the commons, I'm just thinking about like funding for public education as an example, it's going to benefit white people and people of color. It's going to benefit everyone. And so it's so interesting. And to me, it sort of makes so much sense that we have two different guiding metaphors for how we could be. And of course, the majority population who hold most of the power tend to create worldviews and systems and then outcomes that line up with this zero sum game. So if I could, you know, it's it, it just as an economist, you can see the ridiculousness of this zero sum thinking because it literally does not add up. So if I could create a new myth, a new guiding metaphor or myth, it would simply be better together. In the Bible, we would say, what we can do for the least of these, my brothers, will benefit everybody. I mean, the example I love recently is if you think about a building, and think about a building that has a lot of stairs and also has a ramp. If we just built ramps into buildings, which are created for the people who have the least amount of ambulatory ability, they need the most accessible, you know, they're in chairs, right? Or walkers. If we just built ramps, everybody can use a ramp. But if we just built stairs, only some people can take stairs. And so this sort of ramp thinking about the future. We know in Britain, for example, that when you try to make the streets safe for women, they become safer for all people. When a city is trying to be a net zero city around traffic fatalities, which means you're trying to protect pedestrians on foot or on bike or in chair, you actually make the roads safer for all other motorists as well. There's a lot of excellent policy and research around creating, building, and doing policy for the, in air quotes here, the least common denominator and how beneficial that is for all. I love the image of ramps for all buildings. Now, I don't know from an engineering perspective what that means. I can imagine. I have a set of assumptions about what a building looks like. When I come up to my house and I had new steps put in because the old ones were wooden and they had holes, I didn't put a ramp in. It didn't occur to me to have a ramp rather than a back porch. Interesting how a basic assumption about how things look informs and limits our thinking. And I can imagine if it's that simple with ramp versus stairs, it's everywhere in our world that I'm limiting how I see things. I love it because you're being a good, a really good role model, Maureen, for widening your perspective. And that is one of the ways to think like a futurist is just to consider a broader range of inputs. Now I'm thinking about my house. <laughs> Where I, I don't know that I could put a ramp up my stairway, but... But for public buildings, right, for public spaces like libraries and town halls and, you know, courts and, you know, all the places, water utilities, all the places where the general public has to access. What if we did ramp thinking for those public places? Well, and accessible restrooms, because if you can get in, but you can't use a restroom, you're still in trouble. Mm -hmm. To your point, there have to be literally thousands of places I make a limited assumption as I walk through my life every day. What does a car look like? How do we charge vehicles that are electric versus going to a gas station? My partner has an electric car, and so we've explored some of that. And it takes a change in behavior because on a trip you plan more time to charge. And it's a decision we've made that we stand by. It's also safer when I'm driving to have the self-driving car, by the way. 
Well, and it's also why Starbucks is saying we'd be very happy to have your EV charging station here because we would love to sell you a bunch of coffee or and snacks, you know, while we know that you're going to be waiting to charge, to charge things up. But what all of this is really pointing to from a futurist perspective is look at all the options that become available to us when we simply shift our guiding worldview. It is astonishing what is possible. Can you give us a few more examples? Because I love the Starbucks, we charge the EV, it's often in hotels because we're driving cross country and they want to encourage people to stay in their hotel or stop by and buy stuff in the cantina or whatever. But we get used to certain hotel brands we go to a lot because they have chargers. So what are some other examples as you think about foresight and expanding, you used the word earlier, imagining what's possible? I have this signals group that I've already mentioned. We meet every Wednesday and every other Thursday I publish my newsletter and I'm not trying to be promotional except that you can get a pretty regular dose of these kind of signals of the future in my newsletter because I, I write about them, you know, whichever ones I think are super exciting and could kind of explode the way we think about things. So some of the, the things that have sort of blown my mind recently are NASA is once again thinking about how to convert solar energy from space back to earth. So as part of like bringing renewables online. So can you imagine, and it's possible. So one of our nerds is a real scientist and he got really into this and it is possible. And so NASA is now thinking about putting solar renewables on the terrestrial grid from space. It's possible through microwaves. I'm not talking about the appliance that's next to your refrigerator. I'm talking about the scientific wave that is a microwave. So that's like amazing to me. And what does that help to create for us? And oh, by the way, one of our huge transmission interchanges last week announced that it was investing $10.4 billion for the first time in the United States to bring renewables onto the grid in a very meaningful way. Another thing that I think is incredible is all of the biomimicry research that's being done. So how termites teach us how to air condition things in the desert west without needing any air conditioning, but just using nature to help cool our homes. I'm very inspired by some of the things that are happening around the biomedical space. You know, the idea that in the future, if you have you know, diabetes, you'll be wearing a contact lens. You won't have to be messing around with an insulin pump. You know, you, all of these technologies will be taken away. Japan, for those of you who are interested in aging, Japan's population is aging faster than everybody's population. So the things they're doing to figure out how to really care for their elderly, Japan is a country that actually values their elderly. And to see some of the things they're doing with robotics and AI to help care for their elderly population are really inspiring. What else are you interested in, Mo? Or what are you seeing? You know, one is 3D printing, that we will have more affordable, different resource footprint, that we could 3D print a replacement organ for someone who's on a transplant list that we could 3D print a home for someone who doesn't have one. Now they still have to put it somewhere other than under a bridge, but there are amazing options. You know, in my lifetime, I'll stop ordering a bunch of stuff from Amazon and just get the cartridges and print stuff. Stuff that I, I wouldn't imagine, I'm just thinking now like designer fashions or something. I won't be ordering a dress for the event I'm going to this weekend. I'll just print one. that fits me. I won't have to try on six of them. That's a silly example, but on the other side, organs, not silly, right? That people won't be dying. One of my clients right now is Ohio State Medical Center, and they have proton accelerators and electron accelerators. One of them for delivering radiation, instead of going to radiation treatment every X number of days, it's a one-time through something that looks like a TSA booth. It's delivered in a millisecond. It's more concentrated. So someone who has something in their mouth doesn't have all of the tissue in their face dissolve 
there's laser treatment now. One of my clients is working on a laser for mouth cancer that right now there are two places in the country where one can get this treatment. They're having now 3D printed, chips installed, assuming we get through trials and all that stuff that's not easy. This may be available at every rural hospital or medical center, so you no longer have to fly across the country and stay in a hotel. You can take the thing home. The chip is set up so you won't overdose yourself and those kinds of things. The availability of treatment for people suffering from these diseases that right now are terminal will be curing or nearly curing some of the diseases that are just excruciating for the people who have them and their families and extended families. AI, that we will have machines learning and solving. Even what happened with COVID, the rate of the COVID vaccine development was beyond anything we've had in the past because countries came together, scientists came together with the use of supercomputers and learning machines, solving whether it's health issues or environmental issues, the collective intelligence and the machine intelligence coming together and I realize there's still a profit motive, so I'm not trying to sprinkle fairy dust on everything, but that this idea that it's not a zero-sum game, that having a vaccine, having a cure for something. One of my clients developed artificial blood. So imagine no blood type, and it doesn't need to be refrigerated. Now, it won't last forever, but if you need to equip medvac flights... And you can have one kind of blood so you don't have to worry about blood spoilage and you go to a accident scene and there's a pile up and there are a bunch of little kids on a bus. You're not choosing which one gets the blood. There's enough. Yeah, that is a game changer. It reminds me, especially these like biotech examples that you're giving. One thing that it reminds me of is Eric Schmidt was asked if he was going to like repick today, so former CEO of Google, if he was going to re-choose today what field to go into, he didn't even blink. He said, I'd go into biotech. And one of the things that he and his wife are doing with their foundation is they're doing, is it two-year or three-year fellowships for folks from disparate sciences mm -hmm. to come together? Because most of us now recognize that if we work in an interdisciplinary way, we get a lot smarter, a lot faster about a lot of things. So Mr. and Mrs. Schmidt have created this Petri dish for these brainiacs from different sciences to come together and work on the wicked problems of climate change and genetics and some of these pieces. And I don't know if you've yet read The Genesis Machine by Amy Webb, my book of, of the year, whereas How to Be a Good Ancestor was my book of last year. So let's now, as we're coming near the end, for listeners who want to say, okay, this is a great conversation, totally inspirational, what do I do? Right. How do they put this in practice? Because there's one of you. Yeah, yes. You may be surrounded by a firm and... How do they put it in practice? Right. So I think, first of all, just kind of ask yourself, do I want to be the person who's going to get this training? Do I want to do this with a couple of other people? And I have a strong recommend for doing this with others. Like most things in life, this is more fun and more fulfilling when you're doing it with other people. Not to mention, as I said earlier, if it's just you with your one single point of view, you miss a lot of things. So figure out who you would want to have on your signals team, for example, or who you would want to say, like, what if we could think about the future in a more critical way, in a more strategic way? And then there are some really good free resources on the internet. So one of them is Institute for the Future out of Palo Alto, California, has a free course on Coursera called Ready, Set, Future. And it's terrific. I encourage a lot of people to do that. If you kind of want to dip your toe in the water, Jane McGonigal is the teacher. She's fantastic, amazing futurist. If you want to do something that is a little more expensive and requires some travel, um, there is a five-day in-person strategic foresight course. It's how I got started as a futurist at the University of Houston. Um, Andy Hines is the program director for that program. The University of Houston also has um, master's programs in foresight, and I think they even have a PhD in foresight, and they do online and remote learning. So a lot of opportunities there. 
you know, I would love it if people would uh, subscribe to our newsletter. We've got a huge back catalog of webinars on how to think like a futurist and, and whatnot. And, and we're always open to new suggestions as well. Drop us a line and let us know what you're interested in. But really, the I think the first thing to do is to say, like, I want to be a futurist. Like, say it out loud to yourself. Like, I want to bring this capability inside my company, inside my family, you know, inside the way that I am making my own decisions for my own future. And then dip into any of these courses and you will have takeaways from any of these that are going to make you a more agile thinker about what's possible and will outfit you with actual tools that you can put to work. For our listeners in the newsletter that accompanies the podcast, we will include one of Rebecca's blogs and we'll put a link to one of the webinars and we'll do a link, video link to this show. So there will be some resources and a link to sign up to her newsletter as well. Some people are able to take a week off and invest the, the time and the travel. And I would love to be able to start that tomorrow. I'm unfortunately not able to do it right now, but I will be watching some of the webinars because I do an annual predictions for the following year. And I'd like to be better at it than I am. As we're having this conversation, our producer, Dan, is on the screen, and he's also our research expert. So we will be looking at how do we marry all of the information from the podcast to create our little version of top 10 for next year, things that leaders should be thinking about. And the idea that I am informed just seems so fundamental. How could I possibly be making good decisions without having a sense of what's coming, even though I don't know exactly what it is? Yeah. And you're right, because if you don't have a broader perspective, I mean, I notice this in myself, that if I'm not broadening my perspective, then when people ask me my opinion about things, I tend to rely on like availability bias, you know, like the last thing I heard or the last thing I talked about or the last thing that seemed interesting. And that's just taking up air, you know, like better to have an informed point of view where somebody learns something new. And, and by the way, I, I hope you feel this way. Certainly I, as a futurist, we say this all the time. We're not trying to make predictions, right? We're trying to help people think more critically about the future. And that's where people who are amateur futurists who say, I'm a futurist and they're going to predict the future of something, there's not a single future. There are multiple plausible futures. So you brought up ESG. That was one of our five-week signals for 2022. These were five things that came out of our signals panel that we felt like people should probably be paying attention to. So it sounds like your instincts, Maureen, are pretty good. Thank you. And you know what? They'll get better after this conversation. <laughs> and again, in partnership with the team. So it's not me. It's, it is our team and the, and the conversations we get to have. So thank you for saying that. How, Rebecca, would people find you and your information? It's so easy. It's just my name, Rebecca Ryan. And Rebecca is the R-E-B-E-C-C-A. And Ryan is like the boy's name, Ryan, R-Y-A-N, RebeccaRyan.com. Perfect. And LinkedIn and Twitter, but not the one that starts with an F. And you're at RebeccaRyan.com. They can find your newsletter and webinars and any number of resources. That's right. Beautiful. Thank you so much for joining us. To our listeners, I trust that you took away something incredibly valuable from Rebecca's conversation and that even if you don't plan to be a professional futurist, that you will leverage her resources to be smarter about sensing what is possible and probable for your future. Please like us, share us, follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Voice America, iTunes, or wherever you listen to us. Thank you for joining us and thank you for making an impact in the world so that the next generations have a better life than we did. Thank you for this opportunity and we're with you. That is why we get up every day to do something good for people we may never meet. What's your tagline again? The future is ours to create. Let's close with that. The future is ours to create. <laughs>